and, uh, and uh, God will help us and see us through. Thankful to be in the house of the Lord tonight, and I hope that a uh, few things I have to say this evening will be of benefit to somebody, and uh, we are, are so privileged to serve under our great pastor, so privileged to uh, live in the day and age with we, which we live. Uh, we often look back at times of old and think fondly and reminisce of those, but this is the greatest time and moment that the church has ever experienced. Amen. By far, this is the greatest time and moment that the church has ever experienced. Thousands receiving the Holy Ghost. Amen. The world being turned back right side up because of the Spirit of the Lord that's being poured out, and we're grateful for it tonight. Hallelujah. We praise God for it. Amen. For a little while this evening, I would like to speak to you from this title, Lessons Learned When My Plans Didn't Work Out. Lessons Learned When My Plans Didn't Work Out. I've discovered since the advent of the internet that every good video starts with one phrase, and it is this. Hey guys, watch this. Watch this. And it either ends one of two ways, right? The poor sap either just narrowly misses some tragic, painful experience, or he gets sacked in some awful way, and we laugh, and he becomes the next viral star. He or she becomes the next viral star that takes over the Internet. And I'm here tonight as a witness that I have experienced both of those scenarios personally. Uh, there was a moment growing up where um, my... My bicycle was my best friend uh, a lot of the time and my only means of transportation. And uh, me and my buddy, we would uh, go and we would travel. <laughs> we would travel the countryside. Um, it was not uncommon for us to put hundreds of miles on our bike uh, during the summertime. Uh, we would travel here and there and everywhere. And there was this one time when we had the, the great experience, we had the great idea to uh, take our bikes and drive them out uh, to a campground that was on the main highway that went through where we lived. Now, the highway was not an interstate. It was not divided, but there was significant traffic, transports, cars. It was the summertime. It was particularly busy. And uh, so we, we got there, and it was probably 15 or 20 miles from where we lived. And uh, we got there, and we were just, you know, uh, kicking back, doing whatever we were doing. And uh, they had a hand pump there for water. And we decided that we were going to refill our little canister that you have uh, typically on your bike down between your legs where you pedal. And so we did that, and then he got the bright idea to start uh, dumping his water on me. And so, of course, I had to, in return, give him a little back. So I decided that I would do that, and he took off on his bike and headed back toward home, which involved crossing the highway and getting back on going down back toward home. So I followed back in hot pursuit of my friend, and I did manage to get him back a little bit, which was wonderful. But we were driving mountain bikes, right? So you know mountain bikes oftentimes on the end of the handlebar, they'll have that, that little thing that you can hold on to on the ends of the handlebar. Well, in my fervor to get him wet, I hooked that into his shirt. And so, of course, that was, we could not go, <laughs> we could not go on that way uh, with any reasonable uh, skill. And so I began to pull away from him to unlatch my, my handlebar from his shirt. And so I got loose of him, all the while totally oblivious to the fact that we were driving down the main highway on the ditch of the main highway. And so I did that, and I got loose in a very quick manner, and I swerved out into lanes of traffic where traffic would be. And luckily, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, folks, it was only the grace of God, that I managed to get it back over in the ditch where I was safe, and a transport went by about three seconds later, and uh, I could have been there on the uh, floor of the highway, the, the road that day, but God led me to be escaped, and it did not work out in a bad way. I was also kind of a daredevil uh, when I was younger. In the wintertime, of course, we had lots of snow uh, up in the north, and uh, we had a snowmobile, and... Uh, my friend did not have a snowmobile, so in the wintertime, I was the cool one, and in the summertime, he was the cool one because he had a four-wheeler. And so I decided that I would show him what I could do, <laughs> what I could do on the snowmobile. 
So there was, a, there was a, a, a field not too far from our house, and there was a lower part of the field, and then there was an upper part of the field. And uh, it was kind of gradual to the upper part of the field on one side, and then toward the other side was a pretty steep drop-off of probably, I don't know, 20, 25 feet, uh, almost straight down, and then it came, and it was more gradual down below that. So I got the bright idea that I was going to get up on the upper part of the field in the back, get as much speed as I could get out of that snowmobile and hit the top of that and jump it down the front. And I'm glad to say that I escaped that unscathed, uh, but yet there are these things in our life that we look back on and, and are thankful uh, that, that God has kept us from them and that our plans uh, worked out okay, but then there are plans that don't necessarily work out. One time when we were first married, I was, uh, I love donuts. I've said that many times. It's a point of reference in every message. If I do not reference donuts, then it probably was not a good message. So we're going to get that out of the way right up front here. I decided that I wanted to make some donuts. Where I grew up, uh, a lot of the, the ladies would make homemade donuts. And every family, it seemed, had their own little twist on the recipe. And uh, I'm related to, <laughs> to one of the uh, families that, that had this special twist on donuts. They were amazing, simply wonderful. And it was a family secret near as I knew the recipe was. And, uh, but somehow I managed to connive the recipe out of them. And I decided that I was going to start that evening when my wife was at work. She was working second shift at that time. And I was all alone with all the ingredients to make donuts. And I thought it would be a good idea to, to go ahead and try to make those donuts. It was not a good idea. It did not work out well. Uh, I began, uh, they, 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 were, they didn't really give me a lot of specifics on the amounts of each specific one. They just knew, and so I was just kind of winging it half the time. And they, they didn't tell me that you had to set the dough in the refrigerator for a while for it to firm up before you start working with it to cut out the donut holes. And so I had no idea, right? I'm, I'm ignorant. I have no idea. I thought it was the greatest idea in the world. So I made up the dough, and I thought this was going to be great, and we had the frying pan was going, and we had the grease ready, and, and uh, I had all my ducks in a row, so I thought. And I began to work with the dough in its uncool state. And let me tell you, it was at that moment that donut dough became omnipresent. It was everywhere. It was on my hands. It was on my elbows. It was on my face. It was on the floor. It was on the counter. It was everywhere. When my wife got home that night, I was laying back on the couch like I would be uh, in a psychologist's office remembering the evening's events, and it was not a pleasant experience at all. And it was not one of my most shining moments in life, and I will tell you very earnestly tonight that I have never tried to make donuts ever again, ever again. When we moved to France... Um, we, of course, didn't, it was funny the questions you would get, and people would ask you if you were going to, like, take your couch to France, and I'm like, eh, probably not. Uh, we're probably just going to leave that behind. So we didn't have a whole lot when we got there, and so we were making a trip to Ikea to get a few things. We needed a mattress and bedding and this and that. And so um, <laughs> it's funny, when, when, the, when Brother and Sister Urshan came to visit us in Paris while they were uh, in there uh, when they were over in Europe that year. Sister Urshan only had one memory of Paris, and it was of her father driving, complaining about the traffic, as I recall. And so that gives you a frame of reference. The traffic was very bad. And the closer you got to Paris proper, the, the worse the traffic got, as, as is the case with any city, right? And so uh, we go to Ikea. We make it there fine. Uh, we're, we're just a few days in, right? We've never left the continent before. This is all new and all exciting and wonderful. And uh, we're figuring stuff out and, and, and doing the best we can. And so we get to Ikea. We get our wares that we want, uh, that we need to buy. And we fill up our vehicle and we begin to leave. And I come to the main intersection where I had to take a left-hand turn uh, in order to get back on the highway. And so in France, and, in, and I think in most places in Europe, instead of at an intersection, the traffic light being out in front of you on the other side of the intersection where you can see it up above, it's right beside you on light poles. The two lights are. 
So I didn't know, you know, I saw it, but I thought, oh, well, whatever. So I pull out, you know, like a person would if they're waiting to make a left-hand turn and there are cars that keep coming straight from straight ahead. And so I had no idea that the light had turned. No idea whatsoever. So the traffic stopped coming the other way, and I thought, well, hey, here's my opportunity to make a break for it. Well, nobody else had that idea but me. And all of the traffic coming from the other direction started to go, regardless of me being in the middle of the intersection. And, folks, it was the worst trip to Ikea I have ever had in my life. Uh, we, we did get out of it unscathed. I don't even know how. We were in a rental vehicle, and it was by the grace of God that a hair feather or a feather could not have fit between us and the other car when it stopped. And somehow we made out okay, and it ended up not being uh, bad, but it, it was not a pleasant experience. And uh, we looked at each other, and my wife was not terribly happy with me, and there was not a whole lot I could do about it. So we moved on with life. Um, in another instance, we were... <laughs> We were in France, some, some, an individual had come to visit with us while we were there, a friend of ours, and uh, the Eiffel Tower lights up for five minutes, I think it was five minutes, on the hour, every hour when it becomes dusk. So we had some time to kill between when we uh, were going to go over that way, and we were just driving around, showing her various sights and this and that. And, I, you know, I could get around, I could get in Paris, and I could get out, and, uh, but I had not done a lot of driving elsewhere. And so uh, we were just driving along, pointing things out, and this is this, and that's that, and oh, isn't it wonderful, and isn't it lovely? And uh, I, I drive into an area that I had never been before. It was in, uh, you know, not a bad part of town or anything. And I come into this, um, this intersection that's horseshoe-shaped. There are multiple roads that are leading in to where I am coming into from, and so I couldn't really tell. I saw that some of the roads were blocked off and, and other parts of the roads were not blocked off. And I just said, hey, well, let's just pick one. So I went down the straight one. And that was not a terribly good idea. <laughs> it happened to be, not only was it a one-way street and I was not going the correct way, it also happened to lead back into where the presidential palace was and a motorcade was coming my way. The French police were not terribly happy with me that night and uh, he began yelling at me in French, and I wasn't quite catching what he was saying. And then he finally realized that I was an ignorant American, and, and he started talking to me in English, and I pulled out of the way, and he gave me a stern talking to, and uh, I turned around and got out of it some way, somehow. And uh, life is filled with those kind of experiences. Perhaps yours are not as dumb as mine are, <laughs> perhaps, but maybe you have uh, some of your own experiences along these lines. It's a common experience for all of us. You may enter life, uh, adulthood, well-educated. Perhaps you have spent a lot of time planning out what life will hold for you. But what happens if you have done that? And that's well, and that's admirable, and, uh, you know, probably a good thing. But what happens when life does not work out the way that you had thought it would work out? What if God has different plans for you? What if God has different plans for you? Uh, within the past month or so, we traveled to Branson, Missouri with our Bible quiz team to attend the National Bible Quiz uh, Tournament, uh, which is held uh, every year, uh, typically in the Branson area. And the day before we left, as we probably all have heard, there was a very tragic accident that happened in Branson, Missouri, a family multiple families, but one family in particular from Indianapolis, as we all likely know, a uh, number of members of their family uh, were there on vacation and decided to take a duck boat tour, innocently enough, enjoyable enough. Uh, the, the venue where our Bible quiz tournament was taking place was on the lake where, where this incident happened, and it was terribly beautiful, terribly beautiful. It was wonderful. It was just an average day, so they thought, a day on vacation, and in a moment's time, multiple generations of a family were lost in a tragic way. And just today I saw, uh, read an article about the, the mom of the individual, or the lady who lost nine uh, people in her family, say statements like her house was so quiet and it was no longer a home but, but just a house because all of her family was taken away in an instant's time multiple generations, fathers and aunts and, and uncles as it were. 
And you can ask any individual tonight whose life perhaps is in shambles. They've lost a job unexpectedly or been diagnosed with a terminal sickness. And each of them will tell you the pain and the heartache that they have endured going through that situation. Uh, and it is an unfortunate truth tonight, as we would see it, that God oftentimes speaks to us in moments of pain and in moments of discomfort. And as hard as it is to hear, it is that pain that often is the megaphone that God uses in order to speak to people, in order to get their attention. Amen. But I did not come tonight bearing solely bad news. If you're in a dark tunnel filled with pain and uncertainty, let me encourage you tonight that there is good news to be had. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Amen. The pain won't always last. The situation that you're in will end eventually. Amen. And God will take care of it all in his, in his time. There are things to learn. There are ways to grow. There are ways to become better people. And an ultimate positive outcome to be had for every situation that we face in life. No matter how pleasant or no matter how painful. I'm encouraged tonight by the words that uh, Paul spoke to the church in Rome. He said this in Romans 8 and 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And I am longing for the day when that takes place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Your story is not like mine, and my story isn't necessarily like yours. But we've all gone through struggles and situations in life that we did not understand and we could not fully wrap our mind around. And I have come tonight to share just a few lessons that perhaps we could learn, amen, from the Bible in situations when things are not going the way that we thought they would or we expected them to. Very first off in the Bible, the Lord is going through these acts of creation. He is uh, calling things into, into being. He is speaking life into the earth, uh, creating everything that we know and see and and then Adam and Eve comes on the scene, the very first power couple, uh, natural mother and father of us all. Not a care in the world, had no concern whatsoever. The Lord had provided for them in a wonderful way in their only task that they had been given, or their very first task, it wasn't the only task, was to be fruitful and multiply. And they were told to subdue the earth and all the creatures that are in there. And everything that was needful for them was at and arm's length, all they had to do was pluck it down, and it would be available to them from this most beautiful garden that they had ever laid eyes on, that anyone had ever seen and likely ever has, because God does not do things uh, just half-heartedly. Life was perfect. Life was as perfect as perfect could ever be. And yet... In a situation as perfect as that, where there is only one caveat, where there is only one don't, if you will, don't touch uh, one tree. You see that tree? Don't touch one specific tree. Don't eat that fruit. In no uncertain terms, God makes it abundantly clear not to touch that tree. You know the voice that Dad uses when he really means business? Well, that's the voice that God was using, I believe, that day to, to tell them to stay away from this one tree. And this subtle beast comes on the scene, a serpent. He enters the picture, and the voice coming from the certain be serpent begins to contradict God's command. And we all know what happens from there. We are intimately aware and familiar with what has happened because of what the serpent did that day. And I guarantee you, if Eve had to do it over again, which she does not have the opportunity to, that she probably would have chosen a different choice because of the outcome that came that day in an unexpected way. And in this very first uh, man and woman that we see put on face of the earth, we learn this lesson. Be careful, be also careful who you let speak into your life. Oh, so careful who you let speak into your life. We watch the news every day. We read media reports from uh, this and that, sports, entertainment, whatever the case may be. 
And all of these voices are speaking into our spirit, right? Whether we realize it or not, amen, the music that you have pumping in your ears is going to affect you. It's going to affect you one way or the other. Now, with all of life's challenges, it is often easy enough to become distracted with what is going on and keeping the Lord at the center of your life to then put some other kind of music in your ear that would uh, confound the mix all the more. Amen. So we need to be careful who we let speak into our life. Amen. Our ears should be filled with music that is uplifting. Our ears should be filled with reports that are of a good report. Amen. Not something that is tearing down, but something that is building up. So one of the first lessons we learn when things are not going our way is that you should be terribly careful who you let speak into your life. In the earliest recorded, uh, what's often um, considered the earliest recorded book of the Bible, we're introduced to a man with kind of a peculiar name named Job. And uh, another wonderful scene is, is penned during the first few verses of the, the book of Job. Job is described as a perfect man. The Bible says that he is upright. The Bible says that he fears God and that he eschews evil. Isn't that a good King James word? He eschews evil. And uh, he is blessed with a large family. He has great wealth. And uh, Satan then appears on the scene, which is not, you know, terribly, you know, uplifting to, to find that Satan is discussing with God what he can do to you. And it is penned that, that Satan begins to negotiate with God for just how far he can go with Job's life before Job will do something uh, that would be contrary to his relationship with God. And so Satan leaves the scene. He has gotten the Lord's permission to begin afflicting Job. And in what seems like an instant, Satan begins to tear down the life that Job has become accustomed to. His oxen are killed. Fire consumes his sheep. His camel is stolen. His camels are stolen. And his servants are killed. All in just a matter of a moment, if we, if we take it as the Bible has written it. Just a short while later, his sons and his daughters are taken when a house falls in. And in this intense season of grief, Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan comes back again. He comes back a second time. Now he, he sees that Job has not been affected negatively by the, the, the things that enough to cause him to curse God. And so Satan comes back to the Lord another time, asking if he can have a little bit more access to Job. Uh, the Lord gives him access to his physical body. He begins afflicting Job with boils, debilitating boils from head to toe. And the Bible says that Job did not sin with his lips. Did not sin with his lips. Everything at that point has been stripped away from Job. And it begins to wear on Job. He uh, begins to lament. He goes round and round with his friends. Uh, they begin to correct him and, and try to bring him around. And then he justifies why he's lamenting. And on and on this back and forth goes between Job and his friends for over 40 chapters. And then finally, Job challenges God. And God responds in an epic fashion putting Job in his place, describing all of the things that he has done that Job could not do and was not capable of and the ways that he has uh, done wonderful things on Job's behalf. And in that moment, Job humbles himself and submits to God. And bigger and better is to be had after the pain and suffering, wealth and sons and daughters, double what he had before, the Bible records uh, is available to Job after this season of pain and suffering. And the first lesson that I think that we need to learn from Job tonight when things are not going our way and they're not working out the way that we thought or hoped they would be is that God sometimes tears down before he builds up. Sometimes he tears down before he builds up. I mean, there are things perhaps in our life that we have uh, set up little kingdoms, if you will, little things that we're proud of that we uh, love and, and perhaps they uh, are innocent enough in the beginning and then something happens and they become much more uh, than just an innocent hobby. They become something that is displeasing to God. And I don't know if it will happen to you, but I'm guessing 
that it might, that a season might come your way in times where God will tear down things in your life in order that he might be able to build you up and bless you as he never has before. Hallelujah, and I'm grateful for that tonight. It's unpleasant, it's not great, it's not wonderful to go through that, amen, but I'm glad for those seasons in time when God has to do a work in me that I might be uh, better at the end of it all than I was at the beginning. Second thing that I see and learn from this experience with Job is this, is that Satan does not have near as much power as he lets on he does. If you'll notice with me in the verses that uh, I paraphrased tonight, in each instant when Satan began to afflict Job or have a desire to do that, he had to go before the Lord for permission. He had to go before the Lord for permission. So while bad things are happening in the earth, and certainly uh, there are those that do not care for the Lord and, and are obviously uh, turning from him, I am glad, amen, that God is in control and that he has all power. I am glad that I can count on him. I am glad, amen, that nothing comes to me that does not first go through him. Amen. And if there is some unpleasant situation that is in my path, God has the power, amen, to see me through that situation. And I am thankful that Satan does not have near as much power as he lets on that he does. As he lets on that he does. Several hundred years later, we're introduced to uh, a man by the name of Daniel. A wonderful example, uh, and uh, he is found in the scriptures in a book uh, that has his name attached to it. We find him with the nation of Israel captive in the nation of Babylon. Uh, they're amongst a captive uh, and oppressive regime in a foreign land that is not familiar with them. Life certainly had not worked out the way that they had desired or wanted it to, and it was not an appealing situation at all. It was not something that one would look for. And in these times when surroundings were less than perfect, we find that God's blessing and favor resides with Daniel. He uses Daniel in incredible ways. He ministers to the king of the land. He interprets dreams. He provides counsel. And ultimately, God elevates Daniel to a position of authority and prominence uh, in the nation which he finds himself. He was played captive by the nation of Babylon, and then that nation was overthrown by uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And now he is in the second round of, of pain and suffering from uh, a different regime, but he finds himself blessed of the Lord in this place where he is. And, and frankly, it's as good as it possibly can. It's as good as it possibly can be in this situation. Chapter 6 of Daniel uh, opens up, and it records that he is a chosen and a preferred prince, all the while maintaining his relationship with God. Uh, those around him begin to see the blessing of the Lord. They don't like it. They don't like that, that he is being promoted above them. And this plot begins to thicken of a way that they can attack Daniel and cause him to uh, turn from the Lord. They begin to flatter the king. They trick him and cause him to enact a a law that would state that if, if anybody was praying to anyone but him, if prayer was being offered up to anybody but the king, that, that it was punishable. It was punishable in the most devilish of ways. And David is found, of course, praying in his manner that he had done, uh, perhaps and likely all his life. And he is caught in this newfound crime. And despite the wonderful relationship that he had with the ruler of that day, he must face the consequences of his crime. To the lion's den he goes. Of course, that would be no one's preferred end of their life. But what they didn't know was that there was no situation that could come before Daniel that God could not deliver him from. Hallelujah, because God is our deliverer. Amen. God is always watching over us. God is always taking care of us. God always, amen, is protecting us. And in this story of Daniel's life, this first part of Daniel's life, he goes on to live a very rich life after this situation. God delivers him out of the lion's den and does wonderful things, has prophetic words spoken, amen, that are almost second to none in the Old Testament about events coming in the future. But the thing that I learned from Daniel's life, when things were not going Daniel's way, is that God knows how to shut big mouths. God knows how to shut big mouths. Now, what do I mean by that? 
chances are there is one person in your life, perhaps not everybody, but I, I, I would venture to say that there are a few people here tonight, that there is at least one person in your life that that observes from afar. They're, they may be your family member. Maybe they're, they're not terribly attached to you, but, but they, are, they are watching, right? And every time that they feel like the Lord has done you some disservice, every time they feel like the Lord has not treated you the way that you should have been treated, if he, in fact, was a kind and loving God, they make sure to bring it to your attention. They make sure to say to you and let you know that, boy, God sure did fail you here, didn't he? Look at this pain and look at this suffering that you're going through. Amen. But God has not left you alone. God has not forgotten about you. Amen. The situation that you're in, the situation that you're facing is all in the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is coming a day, amen, you can count on it. The Lord is faithful, amen, when they will not have cause to speak any longer because they will see the provision of the Lord in your life. And I am so grateful for that tonight. Hallelujah. I mean, in this same book, we are brought the names of three Hebrew boys that have been latched on to them for all eternity, it seems. We do not really know their age. I'm guessing they were young men, perhaps in their uh, early 20s, and uh, they're contemporaries of Daniel. They are favored of the Lord, much like Daniel is. Uh, life has not worked out terribly well for them either. Uh, much like for Daniel, they are in captivity. But because of Daniel's obedience to, to the Lord and, and, and being in a place of favor with the king, uh, he also asks that, that these, two, uh, these three uh, young men also be blessed of the Lord and put in a position of favor, which they are. And, and that's wonderful. And then literally almost the next verse after this great blessing has been bestowed upon them, they come face to face with an idol that is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and they are commanded in no uncertain terms, to bow down to that idol. The nation was gathered together. The mood was set just right with music. Uh, and a command is given to bow down to the image or face a terrible punishment. A punishment that in the end would become the ultimate final punishment for all of us. Death by fire. Death uh, ultimate uh, in the lake of fire uh, should you not make it to to heaven, God forbid. The nation bows down before this idol, and there are three. <laughs> Thousands of people bow down in this grand auditorium wherever this uh, event was taking place, and there are three that do not bow down. Of course, they stand out. Of course, it is evident that, that these three young men did not follow the command of the king. And enraged by the scene, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar asks them, why aren't you doing this? You, you must do this. It has been my command. Amen. And know in certain terms, you have to do this, or the punishment is death by fiery furnace, which typically would run at about 1,000 degrees, 1,000 degrees. Not intimidated by the ultimatum, they respond, amen, with words that give me great encouragement today and continued defiance with what uh, they have been asked to do, commanded to do by the king. Daniel 3, verses 17 and 19 say this from the perspective of the one of the three Hebrew men speaking for all of them. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery, the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more. Verse 22, therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace was exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It killed the guys that were supposed to throw the three Hebrew boys into the fire. It was that intense of a heat. Verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, 
Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Deliverance, wonderful deliverance that's provided from the Lord, even though things did not work out. The way that they had planned, I'm sure, nobody would want to go out of this life in that manner, but they were faithful to their Lord, faithful to their God. Lessons I learn here are twofold. Number one is you may go into your trial bound. You may go into your trial bound, but you're coming out free. You're coming out free. The Bible, go ahead. It's, it, God's worthy of praise on that count for sure. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you'll notice in verse 23, it says that when they were thrown into the fire, that they, had been, that they were bound. But then we record Nebuchadnezzar rising that the men were loose at the end of that situation. There are things that God wants to clean out, amen, of our closet. There are things that God wants to take care of in our house that are there and have been there and have bound us for a long time. And you may go into your situation feeling so heavy and so weary from these things that have bound you and held you back and down for so long. Amen. But I'm here to declare this night, amen, with great faith and confidence in the God that serve, that we serve, that he will bring you out free on the other side, amen, of that trial that you have gone into, perhaps bound by situations and things that have creeped into your life. And I'm grateful for that this morning, amen, that you don't have to be bound anymore. God, amen, will set you free in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The second thing that I learned is that what you know, what you know is more important, it's more important than what you see. What you know is more important than what you see. Your situation may tell you that God has forgotten about you, but you should know tonight if you have come here any length of time and served the Lord, amen, for any amount of time, that that despite what might lie before you and how bad it might look and how uh, terribly uh, alone you might feel in that situation, that you are not alone. No matter what you see before you, amen, doesn't matter what it is, how bad the circumstance before you, what you see is irrelevant. But what I know takes precedent. I know that God is faithful. I know that God is going to see me through how do I know that? I know that because his word has told me. I know that because I have lived for him before and he has seen me through, amen, time and time again. And even though the situation might be the worst it's ever been in my life, I know that God will see me through because he has promised to see me through. So what I know about God is more important than what I see before me. It's more important than what I see before me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're introduced to David and Bathsheba, amen, names that will uh, live down uh, through history, combined together, amen, in their act, uh, remembered for all eternity. 2 Samuel chapter 11 opens with a sequence of battles that David had won recently. Uh, a statement is made that it came to pass at the time when kings go forth to battle, but... It follows up that David was not part of that number. David had decided that he would remain in Jerusalem. He would remain in Jerusalem. And in a moment of idleness, strolling the balconies uh, of the palace, David looks out over the city and sees uh, Bathsheba, who is married, uh, washing herself on the rooftop. He is enamored with her. He desires to uh, have her closer to him. He sends for her. An illicit relationship develops, a child is conceived, and David goes about bringing her loyal soldier of a husband back in order to wine and dine him. He does just that. He plays out a big spread for them, amen, and congratulates him on his wonderful victories and, and the great things that he's done in the army. And uh, tells him to go home. Go home, and the hope is, right, that if you send him home, uh, to his wife that he has not been with in a long time, that he will uh, want to be with her. And then that way this whole thing can be covered up 
and uh, we don't ever have to, nobody has to know about it. We'll just sweep it under the rug in a manner of speaking, and uh, everything will be okay. We'll just take care of it this way, and everything will, will hopefully work out just fine. He uh, sends Uriah home. Uriah refuses to go home. He stays at the gate of the palace because he is so loyal to his king that he does not even want to leave uh, his side, in a manner of speaking. Uh, finally, David's grasping for something to do with Uriah. He instructs him back to the battlefield, to the front lines of the hottest battle that were ever, ever had in that specific time. His comrades were there. He was there fighting in the heat of the battle. And Jay, uh, David sends word to uh, his generals to pull back the men. And Uriah's life is taken that day in this fierce battle in order to uh, eliminate the awful thing that had, or try to eliminate this awful thing that had developed between David and Bathsheba. In a manner of speaking, he was murdered, right? He was, he was murdered because of instructions that were given purposefully in order to take his life. David, uh, you know, obviously probably feels some sense of relief that his plan worked and that nobody knows about it and, and, and you know, whatever. Everything's going to be fine now because you were able to cover it up and make uh, this thing perhaps go away. A little bit later, we are introduced to the prophet Nathan who comes to David's side he tells David a parable about a poor man with a sheep. And uh, this is all pretty much that the, the poor man has. He doesn't have a lot of wealth to him, as to him and his small family, and uh, this little sheep. And then he describes this rich man that comes into the poor man and takes his sheep, even though he has flocks beyond measure uh, of his own in order to take advantage of this poor man. David is outraged outraged at, at what he is hearing Nathan tell him, still oblivious to the fact that this is applicable to him, that it's relevant to the situation that he is, he is in. And the decree is given by Nathan that in this season of outrage against who could this be, let me go and take care of it. Nathan says the words, thou art the man, and I'm sure David never expected to hear or for this situation to end in the way it does, because most people in that circumstance never do think that the relationship is going to end poorly or that there are going to be grave, long-lasting uh, effects of what they have done. But we find later on that David repents, and God forgives him of this grave, grave sin that he has committed. Not without consequence, not without issue, not without circumstance that would uh, befall him later on in life because of these acts. But the thing that I learn in this situation is this. The best response, the best response is always to humble yourself and repent. The best response is always to humble yourself and repent. You may want to respond. You may feel justified in the particular situation that you're in. You may feel like you have done no wrong and yet... Uh, wrong is coming your way, situations are coming your way that you may not feel you deserve, situations are at your doorstep that you don't want to have to deal with, that you don't want uh, in your life, and it may be your first reaction to want to lash out and do something rash against this, but I'm here to say tonight that the best response is always to humble yourself and repent, always to humble yourself and repent. Amen. Perhaps you are in the right. Perhaps things were done wrong to you on purpose. And that's fine and that's unfortunate and, and God forbid that should happen to any one of us. But even so, the best response is always to humble yourself and repent and repent. I'm coming to a close tonight. John, if you want to come back, that'd be great. Uh, we can all stand this evening. Perhaps you're wondering if we could throw, oh, it's up there, okay. You may be wondering, you may be wondering tonight why a picture of Paris is used up here on the screen. It's purposeful. It's purposeful. My family and I are in a season of learning, a season of learning lessons much like those that we've spoken about tonight, lessons that uh, perhaps we did not want to have to learn uh, but nevertheless find ourselves learning. One year and one month ago, we returned from our missionary tour in France. 
you have heard me go on about it time and time again, and I thank you for your patience and uh, on that wise. But here's the deal, folks. Here's the, here's the genesis. Here's the, the initiation of this message, where I'm coming from tonight. Nearly two decades were spent in my life and in the life of my wife thinking about, dreaming about, planning, having great thoughts of, of things to come, what God we thought had in store for our life, our ultimate ministry, what that would be. We uprooted our family. We uprooted our life. And, you know, whatever. It, it, it was hard. It, 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 but it was fine. God was faithful. We started our life over in a new and unfamiliar continent and culture. And we, saw, we thought for sure, we thought for sure that this was going to be our life's calling. Only to have it end in an unexpected way. I have cried many tears since we have returned and probably will yet into the future. In fact, wondering why things worked out the way that they did. Even tonight before we came this evening, Des was telling me that last night she couldn't sleep. Uh, she went downstairs to uh, watch something so that you know she could hopefully get tired and and be able to go to sleep. And, and in that show that she was watching, um, there was, it was taking place in Paris. And she said, I came back upstairs and began to sob because of how things didn't work out. And we're a year and a month on into our time back and in more of one occasion, I felt like a failure for how things worked out. It was all self-inflicted, feeling like a failure when you stand with a man and wife and family like Brother and Sister Enos and their family. That spent, you know, 30, 40 years on the mission field when you know, technology was not what it was. They couldn't communicate easy enough, and you had to write letters, and, and uh, we could FaceTime people, and it was great, and it was wonderful. And it was all self-inflicted. And I'm here to tell you tonight that I still do not fully understand what it was all about, what it was all for. I mean, I know, I know generally what it was for, right? I know that we blessed the church. I know that we were an encouragement to people, and I know that we built relationships, but... I'm just having a hard time understanding all of the details of why things worked out the way that they did. Now, I apologize tonight for those of you perhaps that asked us at some point or another how life was on the missions field or how we enjoyed it, how the experience was. And there have been more than one person uh, whom I responded to in a positive light. It was, it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was the hardest and most challenging experience of my life, and I would do it over again in a minute. But folks have asked me and given me kind of a funny look when I responded in a particular way because perhaps my enthusiasm was not what they had expected it to be. And I want to clear all that up tonight and tell you that it was the best experience of my life and that I would do it again in a minute. But it didn't end the way that I thought it was going to end. And I'm still having a little bit of a hard time with that every now and then. Because it didn't end the way that I expected it to end. And we're still working through those details and we're still learning our lessons. And we don't know all the lessons that we're to learn. But, but it's from that background that I speak to you tonight. That I encourage you tonight. That your situation may not be working out the way you wanted it to work out, but I can tell you tonight with great authority that God has been faithful. It didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out, but God has provided. God has made a way for a job employment. Amen. 
far above and beyond what I deserve. He has made a way time and time again. He has proved himself to be faithful. And in the meantime, while I'm trying to work out the details of my situation and learn the lessons that God has for me, I want to encourage you tonight. Amen. If you want to come down tonight in the middle of your situation that's not working out the way that you wanted it to work out or the way you thought it should, God will make a way. God will make a way. Don't lose hope. Don't don't just go by what you can see with your eyes, but stand upon what you know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is the mighty God. He is the lover of my soul. He is my Savior. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He has brought me this far and by God He will see me through to the other side. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. So with that tonight, amen, I would invite you to come down to the front if you are interested in that. The Lord certainly has a word of encouragement for you tonight. The Lord certainly has a blessing for you tonight. A little glimpse into your future, perhaps, to help you understand that this struggle is not going to last always. It's not going to be there at all times, but there is a day coming, amen, when he will work it out, that he will make a way, amen, he will reveal himself to you. He will show you the way forward. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He'll make a way for you. He will make a way for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.